We have several passages of Scripture before us here, and what I've done is, is I've split this up into a couple parts, and I hope you don't mind, but that verse 12 is such a magnanimous passage of Scripture. It is so powerful and potent, and uh, there's several things that I want to consider here before us, but as I think about the relevance of this passage and what we're looking at today with the topic of apostasy, and that's really what we're looking at, the peril, if you would, if you want a title, the peril of apostasy, and just how relevant that really is. You know, it just seems like today in the evangelical church, we need to hear this more than ever. Uh, so many influences are going on right now in the evangelical world. I mean, just for the last couple of weeks, I've heard two major evangelical leaders say things that to me were deeply concerning and downright compromising of the Christian faith. If you ever listen to the podcast, Red Grace Radio, I've actually interacted with the statements that were recently made by Rick Warren concerning the Catholic Church, where he proceeded to say that the Pope was our Pope, and that if you love the Pope, then you will, lo- you will certainly love Jesus, and that the Pope is doing everything right and that we ought to follow in the footsteps of the Pope, and we ought to follow his example. Uh, You know, say what you want about Rick Warren, but we've always known that there was concerns there, but this type of compromise to me was just enigmatic, and and ultimately it was just the relevance of what I was studying in comparison to what I was hearing. And then, you know, we have other major evangelical leaders who are uh, seemingly more and more now unwilling to take a stand on what is the gospel and whether or not you can have a false gospel and still be in the faith. For example, uh, Ravi Zacharias recently at a conference of Veritas uh, refused to answer a simple question on whether or not a Catholicism is a true, has a true gospel or if Catholicism is a true religion. Well, folks, listen, that is exactly the climate that I'm talking about where major evangelical leaders are refusing to take a simple gospel stand on what the Bible teaches, refusing to say whether or not something like Catholicism is true or false. It just brings me to this whole passage. And when you consider what's going on right now in the evangelical world with the whole worship industry, uh, just uh, a singer and artist after artist giving in, capitulating on issues like homosexuality, where at every turn now it seems like a new artist has caved in on their convictions from the leading uh, singer of the Jars of Clay band to Vicki Beeching, a popular uh, Pentecostal contemporary singer, to Derek Webb, who has done many good and wonderful things with Reformed people like Indelible Grace, Jennifer Knapp, of course, and many, many others who have completely sold out the gospel. Derek Webb, who is probably theologically more like-minded, I would think, with where, where, where we come from on certain things, actually was hosted at the annual uh, Gay Christian Network Conference and led worship for them. So there's no question that we're living in volatile times where, just like the atmosphere of the Apostle Paul, brethren are caving in on different issues all around us. And so I want to take you, dear friends, if you would, go to Galatians chapter 1 with me as we launch into Hebrews. I think Galatians is an adequate place to begin as we start thinking about this whole issue of apostasy now and how simple the issue really is. It's not difficult. Had you asked me if Catholicism is a true religion, to me, I would have answered that as a yes or no question. And of course, the answer would be no, it is not, because they do not have a faithful presentation of the gospel. It's really that simple. The Apostle Paul He doesn't need a 10, 20-minute answer that is so complicated that you don't don't know what he's really saying. He gives you three verses to make it very clear what it is that we believe, Uh, beginning in verse 6, because what we're facing today in evangelicalism is nothing new. 
Uh, this has been with the church since the beginning of its infancy. And so verse 6 says, I am amazed. Remember, Galatians, Galatia is a church that the Apostle Paul himself planted. And he says, returning back and writing to them now, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. And so that is the essence of it, Christ, the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort. You see that? The word distort there in the Greek is the word to pervert. It means to twist, to distort, to, to move out of recognition. The gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, I don't care how popular you are, I don't care how big of a following you have on social media or on your website or on your networks or how many donors donate to your ministry, even if it is an angel from heaven, if they should preach un to, to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Now, the word accursed shows us the gravity of what's at stake here. The word accursed, the Greek word is anathema which simply means to be cut off from God. It means to be cursed of God. And he says, as we have said before, so I again I, I now say, or so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That is an extremely uh, uh, provocative statement there at the end of verse 9. He is to be accursed. That is actually an imperative phrase, which means the church actually has an obligation to recognize a person who is perverting the gospel as accursed. We have an obligation to meet. Therefore, what we have in Hebrews chapter 3, in the beginning of this long dissertation on apostasy, is so incredibly relevant to us and important for us not just, to, not just to evaluate what is going on around us, but as this passage itself is going to produce, hopefully, a, a fear, a warning, a, a wisdom within our own heart so that we put a watch over our own lives regarding this whole issue of apostasy. Now return with me to Hebrews chapter 3 as we look at this, but... Um, there are several exegetical links here that go together. If you remember, last week we looked at verses 7 to 11, and really that was taken from Psalm 95. That's where the author got it from, Psalm 95. And I told you that chapter 3 and chapter 4, it really are an exposition of Psalm 95, and that's exactly what it is. You can see that by the fact that it repeats in verse 13 the phrase, today and the repetition of what is mentioned in verse 7 here. And then, of course, the historical details that are given, especially as respects the history of Israel, verses 16 and 19. All of that is an exposition of Psalm 95 and what it's talking about. But really, the essence of this passage, especially here at the rest of chapter 3, verses 12 to 19, has to do with the issue of unbelief. Look at verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And then verse 19. So we see that they could not enter, or they were not able to enter because of unbelief. This is the, um, this is, these are the bookends of this text, the inclusio, if you would. This is how the, the author begins and ends his whole dissertation here on apostasy with the issue of unbelief. And hopefully what's going to follow here is going to help us to understand not only how apostasy works, but in the coming weeks how it can be avoided and how it can be ultimately overcome. So the passage is going to move us from not just the nature of apostasy, that's what I want to consider today, but then ultimately the remedy for apostasy and then a plea to avoid apostasy altogether. But today, we're looking at the perilous nature of apostasy, the perilous 
nature of apostasy. And I think the very first thing we need to do is define what is apostasy? What is apostasy? Well, the word apostasy refers to what happens when a person goes from a place of confessing faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel to no longer maintaining the integrity of that confession. That's why the chapter, if you notice, go back to verse 1, begins with our confession. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. So the confession there means there is a body of truth. There's a body of doctrine. There is a propositional formula that you have to believe if you are going to remain faithful faithful to our apostle, faithful to the high priest, remain as a holy brother, a partaker of the heavenly calling. Biblically, apostasy can be two different things. It can either be temporary, and that's what you see with Peter, who after he had sinned, later returned, or permanent apostasy, like Judas. It never refers to losing your salvation, but it does refer to forfeiting salvation, so long as a person remains in that state of unbelief. That's the way apostasy works. In addition to this, Scripture teaches that a person who has in fact apostatized, he has also surrendered or he has also forfeited all assurance of salvation. Matthew 18 is a perfect example of this. Matthew 18 is where Jesus gives instructions to the church on how to deal with an impenitent brother or sister who refuses to repent even after being confronted by the church. And after that has been done, they are to treat this uh, person as an unbeliever who cannot be trusted. Now, I add that because in Matthew 18, it says very clearly that you are to treat them like a Gentile, and then he says, like a tax collector. But you know what a tax collector was in the first century? It was an untrustworthy person. It was a conniver. It was a liar. It was a schemer. It was someone who could not be trusted. And so what is Jesus saying? If a person refuses to repent, even after being confronted by the whole church, they are to be reckoned somebody who is untrustworthy. He dealt, the Apostle Paul also dealt with this very same issue. Everywhere he went, it seemed as if he was dealing with the problem of apostasy. Back to, back to Galatians chapter 1. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. That is a church that had been founded and that in a very short while, in just a few years of its existence, was slipping from the gospel, was going further and further away from orthodoxy. And that's exactly what Paul encountered literally everywhere he went when he goes to Corinth in Corinthians. You remember 2 Corinthians 11, verse 26, he says that one of the perils of his missionary journeys as he traveled abroad everywhere is that one of those perilous things was that he was among false brethren, perils of false brethren, people who were not actually brethren, people that he, th he thought that he could trust who actually turned out to be false who had no desire to follow Christ, who ultimately showed the true cards that they were really not following Christ and not of Christ and not of God and went beyond the doctrine of Christ and went back into the world. You remember his farewell letter to Timothy, chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4? One of the things that Paul, to add insult to injury, there's Paul fighting for the gospel, incarcerated for the gospel, in prison for the gospel, and he tells Luke, Luke, please come quickly. He says, everybody has deserted me. And he said, Demas, who was a close companion to the Apostle Paul, loving this present world, has deserted me. He went back to Thessalonica. So Paul understood intimately the danger of apostasy. Um, there is a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Keith Kessie who has uh, done a remarkable a job of taking his missionary journeys, if you would, very Pauline-like too, all over the world, including the Muslim world. And he goes all over the world 
uh, uh, documenting his missionary journeys that he goes on. Just tremendous, tremendous. But one of the things that he, that he uh, uh, talks about is when he talks to these missionaries abroad and pastors abroad, that one of their biggest problems is apostasy. He said, for every Timothy, there are ten Demases. That's what he said. Amazing. So apostasy is a real issue. And we see this probably no better place than if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, you see Paul in one of his strongest warnings, one of his strongest words really against the whole issue of apostasy deals with two individuals directly and explicitly. And the words that he has for Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18 are uh, quite telling. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. So this is part of the minister's fight, is to fight apostasy. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. Among these are Hemenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. These two gentlemen were people that Paul knew intimately. He was acquainted with them. He knew them personally. No doubt at some point they were his friends, his companion, brethren. They had fellowship. But because they refused to keep the soundness of the faith, they made shipwreck of themselves. They rejected keeping the faith and a good conscience and in doing so, they shipwrecked their own faith. And by doing that, it led to blasphemous things. I would say Rick Warren is blaspheming by saying that the Pope is my Pope, that the Pope is your Pope. Friends, do you know what it means to have a Pope? It means to have a vicar of Christ on earth. It means that we need to bow down to his ex-cathedra statements that when he speaks, God speaks with all authority, and that His authority is binding for all people. There are many blasphemies that are associated with the Catholic Church. The whole priesthood is a blasphemous organization, an alter Christus, which means another Christ. There is a, another Christ in the priesthood of the Catholic Church. What are they talking about? We only have one Christ. There is only one mediator between God and man. We need no other mediators. Can you tell I'm upset at Rick Warren today? Well, don't make statements like that. And don't put out little cute videos with little, you know, with a contemporary guitar playing in the background and with you selling out the king. And think that you've done something noble. You know, I think the reason why Rick Warren's confused about this is because in that very same video, he goes on to say, we are united with the Catholic Church in mission. No, we're not. Because when he went on to say what our mission is, he was talking about marriage. He was talking about sexuality. He was talking about um, these types of moral values. That's not the mission of the church, folks. The mission of the church is not a humanitarian mission. The mission of the church is not a social mission. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. That's the mission. And we do not agree with the Catholic Church what the gospel is. We completely disagree. And these men, Hemenaeus, Alexander, they refused to keep the faith. They refused to stay sound regarding faith. And therefore, they have suffered a shipwreck. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Don't trifle with doctrine. It is nothing to trifle with. All of this leads us to this fact, that in Scripture there is an undeniable tension regarding the doctrine of apostasy, nowhere more than here in Hebrews. Such a tension has to be maintained, this idea that, that uh, apostasy is a reality that we have to watch for, be, that we have to know about. And at the same time, we know that Scripture teaches us about the Reformed doctrine of the preservation of the saints. 
I know that almost sounds like Scripture got it from the Reformed. That's not what I mean. You know what I mean? Scripture teaches what Reformed theology would say emerges out of the pages of Scripture that is so certain, so clear, so evidenced by the many, many passages of Scripture, of scripture that teach this that I'm going to cite to you in a second that we can have great confidence and great assurance that God is going to keep us until the end. And yet, in the same breath and with the same level of intensity and with the same amount of weight placed on the truth, we are told to be careful. Look at verse 1 again. We begin with the threat of apostasy because verse 12 gives us the threat and the root, as well as the consequences of apostasy. So the threat begins with this caution. Take care, brethren. You see that? Now the word there, to take care, just means to look. Blepete comes from blepo. It means to look, to see, behold, look at something. But when it's used in this context and in this imperatival fashion, it means that a warning has been issued be on the lookout. Be warned. And of course, where does the warning come from? It comes from verses 7 to 11. Look at what happened to Israel. They provoked God. They hardened their hearts. They tested God. Therefore, God was angry with them. Be careful because verse 10 and 11 tell us exactly what happened. They went astray in their hearts. Therefore, God swore they would not enter his rest. He swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. Take care, brethren. Major warning given to us here. That is to say again that, there, that, that all of this flies in the face of anything like a cavalier attitude towards perseverance. Anything like a fatalistic attitude towards perseverance. Hey, I'm saved, once saved, always saved. Look, I know, you know, I, I can live how I want. I can do what I want because I am safe and secure in the hands of Christ. No, Scripture teaches the complete opposite. It teaches the complete opposite and why we're supposed to fear, fear, real, genuine fear what happens here. Not just from without, but from within, as the Scripture is going to teach us. There are real dangers from inside, personal sin, from outside, evil influences. We live in a world that is extremely dangerous. And the biggest danger of all is that we can be eternally undone. Eternally undone. Now, again, let me reiterate this tension for us because we have to hold on to it. And the whole Christian life long... Like two, uh, like two rails on a railroad, you have to keep them uh, s- secure in their place. You cannot loosen your grip on either one or you'll fall off the rails, so to speak. Because as much as Jesus assured his disciples that he would protect them, John 17, that he would keep them in his name, that He would protect them and keep them safe until they saw His glory. Or chapter 10, let me read to you John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one, is, no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What great and comforting and warming truths that is. Oh, those are such glorious things to meditate on. You have eternal life. Jesus is going to keep you. He knows you. You will never perish. No one can take you out of Jesus' hand. And no one can take you out of the Father's hand. That's so great to meditate on that. But Jesus also said this. Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name, 
but it is the one who endures to the end that will be saved. But that sounds like personal responsibility is put on me to do it. I remind you, brothers and sisters, that it is the same book of the Bible, Philippians, that says that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it to the day of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's the same book that goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So, it must mean this. As we think about this theologically, as we think about the tension, it must mean that these warnings in Hebrews and everywhere else in Scripture means that this is the means by which God will keep us safe to the end. God has ordained that the way that we will persevere to the end is by taking heed to these warnings, by fearing, by working out in fear and trembling, by keeping a close watch on your life, your doctrine, all those types of things. Now, externally, we confess there are many dangers. Externally, we know there are lots of spiritual pitfalls lurking around every corner, represented by the world, represented by the devil. But the root of all apostasy is the heart. Look at the text. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart. So, there's so much here. Boy, I'm just bursting with zeal to preach this right now. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> there's just so much I want to get to. I, I wish I could get to it all at once. Then that would be an unintelligible sermon. So, let's go step by step. Settle down here for a second. This, this call here, take care, brethren. Notice how even though this exhortation that is given to us in Hebrews, even though it's given to the whole church, everyone at one time, at the same time, it's individualized for every particular member. In any of you is a, it's a distributive way of saying each one of you has to take personal responsibility with this warning that each one of you has to examine that there not be an evil, unbelieving heart. That means every member... Sure, as a church, like with Galatians, the whole church has to evaluate. The leadership of the church has to know, are we doctrinally sound? Are we in the gospel? But individually as well, to quote Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13.5, where he says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Now turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, please. 2 Peter, because I think it's a good parallel, and it moves us in the same direction of personal responsibility. It gives us a warning, and then it gives us a direction. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. There's a warning, and then there's a prescription for going in the same direction as what Hebrews is telling us. Here it says, you, therefore, beloved, 2 Peter 3.17, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see that? Protecting the heart has as much to do with what you do as with what you don't do. The question is not just make sure there's nothing wrong per se, but what are you doing right? right? Notice Peter's balance. Do not be carried away by error, okay? whether that is sinful error, whether that is doctrinal error. Don't be led astray by error, but grow in grace and knowledge. Surely this is the best way to keep a watch over your heart. Not simply by focusing on what you are not allowed to do in the Christian life, but by focusing on what you are called to do. Proactive, pursuit, 
pursuit of grace, failure to kill unbelief at the root will result in what Hebrews calls an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, let's go into the theology of this phrase, an evil, unbelieving heart. Where does it come from? The author of Hebrews just make it up? Well, kind of, <laughs> but there's more to it than that, right? And what I'm talking about is, remember what I said, all of this is an exposition of Psalm 95. And Psalm 95, therefore, puts us back into the theology of the Old Testament, the Old Testament. And that's where all of this comes from. The evil that is spelled out in Psalm 95, first of all, is disobedience. So this description, evil, unbelieving heart, shows us two things. Number one, that the, that the essence of this evil, unbelieving heart is disobedience, the willful rejection of God's Word and the unwillingness to surrender to His will. Go back up to verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. And then second of all, I want to point this out because it's important. The fact that it is evil, the heart, means that it is not neutral. There is no moral neutrality. Notice in verse 8, because of their evil, unbelieving heart, they provoke God. They did not remain morally neutral. You know, some people think they can do that. Have you ever heard that? I've heard that. I've heard people say things like, you know, I'm just going to back off. They say, you know, it's not that I don't, it's not that I don't, you know, I have nothing against God personally. I just don't believe in it anymore. I've heard people tell me that. I, I just, right now, I can't, I can't, look, I respect it and everything, but I just, right now, I can't go along with this. I can't live my life according to the gospel. This is an illusion of the worst kind because the person is not understanding that it doesn't matter so much that you are afraid to offend God. Oh, I'm sure God takes, you know, great comfort in the fact that you don't want to offend Him. But my dear friend, the, the more important thing is that you have now devoted yourself to the wrath of God. It is not so much that you are angry at God, oh, we should be afraid that you would do that, but oh, that God is angry at you. That's where the warning really lies. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 6. It's impossible to be morally neutral in this life. It's impossible to be neutral regarding God. I respect the man upstairs. I respect religion. I respect you Christians for what you believe. But as for me, you know, I just, I'm not into that whole way of life. It's just not that simple. You have to reckon with God. And as a matter of fact, there is a direction here. There is a position. You have taken a moral position. Romans 8 makes it very clear that there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to this issue. For the mind, Romans 8, 6, for the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. You see that? For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When a person rejects faith, rejects good conscience, rejects these things, rejects the gospel, they have put themselves at enmity with God. They have entered into a war where they are at odds with God. And I tell you the truth that they will not always hold such seemingly harmless opinions about the faith. It will not be long before their conscience begins to eat away at them where they have to begin the process of hardening themselves against the knowledge that they know to be true. Eventually, in the heart of any apostate person, there must be finally a hatred for God, a rejection of God a hatred of His Word, a hatred of His standards, a hatred of His authority, and finally, a hatred of His people, a hatred of His church. Ultimately, it boils down to rejecting God 
despite how good he is, despite how holy he claims to be, despite his justice, and despite his promises, you spurn God. And that's exactly what Psalm 95 is talking about. Numbers 14, 11. Do me a favor and turn to Numbers 14. I thought it ironic that Pastor Chris touched on Numbers because I was going to Numbers. I was like, he better not go to Numbers 14. Steal my thunder here. But Numbers 14 is a relevant, a very important passage because it really is the historical background of Psalm 95. But Numbers 14, we get a glimpse of all of this. The Lord said to Moses, this is Numbers 14, 11, how long will this people spurn me? You see that? It is not just that they did not believe. Oh, they did that. How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? You see, their unbelief led them to provoking God, to spurning God, to undermining the Word of God. And Deuteronomy says basically the same thing. It makes it clear that the people's downfall was their unwillingness to trust Him. Trust Him personally, even despite all the miraculous things that He did. In Numbers 14, again, Moses, after he intercedes for the people, God agrees not to annihilate the Israelites, but He still judges the wilderness generation just as He said He would, just as He swore in His wrath that they would not enter His rest. And again, look with me at Numbers 14.20 to see this. The Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely, all the men who have seen my glory, my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. See, many, that, many believe that the evil, unbelieving heart that Hebrews is talking about here comes back to Numbers because in Numbers 14, 27, if you just jump down, the Israelites are called an evil congregation, an evil congregation. And again, verse 35, an evil congregation. It is the only place in the entire Pentateuch where that phrase appears an evil church, because many of the Septuagint authors, they would translate this as ecclesia, the church in the wilderness that Peter, or excuse me, Stephen talked about in Acts chapter 7, right here is hardening themselves against God, and God is calling them an evil congregation. Now, if the Israelites were considered an evil church, in the Old Testament sense, with the amount of revelation that they had afforded to them at that time. To use the language of Hebrews, brothers and sisters, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's why chapter 2 says we have to play, pay closer attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And the implication is we have to pay even closer attention than they did than they did. God did not deliver us from a tyrannical government, but from Satan's dominion. He did not split the Red Sea for us, but far greater, He rose His Son from the dead. He did not give us water out of a rock, but living water from the rock Himself, Christ. He is not setting before us an earthly country to inherit, but He is setting before us a heavenly city that God Himself has built. You know, human beings built the cities in Canaan, the cities that the Israelites would go in to dispossess, buildings that would ultimately fall apart, right? You go to Israel and you go to places like Tel Dan. Why Tel Dan? Because a Tel is a place where an ancient city used to exist, and then the people put sand over it because the sands of time crumbled the city and built another city. And they have multiple cities built on top of these tells in it, all over the, the, the region of Israel. Well, God's city doesn't have a tell. It will never have a tell. 
It will never be built over because it will run out one day. It will, it will succumb to rust and it will succumb to the elements. God's city, the heavenly Jerusalem, will remain forever and ever and ever. So we have a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. In other words, the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is one from the lesser to the greater. Romans, or Hebrews chapter 9 especially proves that. Now this brings us to the consequences of Hebrews. How shall we escape? If we have an evil, unbelieving heart, let's consider the consequences of what takes place. Take care, brethren, that there, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So powerful, right? And again, this is what happens. The peril of apostasy is understood best in what it results in. Namely, that you fall away from the living God. The consequences for apostasy could not be any greater. Friends, to abandon faith is to be cut off from God. It is to live now under the anathema of Galatians. To live under the anathema of Galatians means you are now exposed to all of the dangers that come with a sinful world. You are now exposed and you are no longer under the protection, the canopy of God's protection in the church, but now you have been put out so that you are exposed to all the satanic influences of the world that will be brought to you unmitigatingly, and you are no longer under God's banner of protection. It's very serious. Notice that God here, notice the result here is that you fall away from the living God. Certainly it means that God, the living God, means that He has life in Himself. It means that He is the life giver. It means that apart from Him, there is no life. It means that apart from Him, there is nothing but death. And that no matter what course of action, no matter what lifestyle you decide to take up, once you've abandoned faith in God, it will only lead to death no matter how right it is in your eyes. Ultimately, however, this phrase, the living God, again emerges from Numbers, if you'd kept your hand there in Numbers 14, I would read to you one more time from there, Romans 14, 28 to 30. He says, say to them, and here it is, as I live, there is the attribute of life that I believe Hebrews is pulling from. As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. No wonder people, so many people named their sons Caleb. He's a hero of faith. He kept faith. And as a matter of fact, let's chase this out. Let's tease it out a little bit further here. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Caleb is set out sort of as a prototypical Israelite who does what? He fully followed the Lord. If there could be one thing that could be said of you, brothers and sisters, when you come to the end of your life, let it be that it will be said of you, you fully followed the Lord. I love it because it means that Caleb was different. Caleb was rare, even in his day. They did not want to follow in the example of Caleb. Show, to show you this, go back to Numbers again. And... Consider with me what is said here after the report is brought back, part of the, the spies that go out and part of those that came and gave the report. Well, Caleb debunks people because part of those, the delegation that went out, came back and they gave a false report that the land was dangerous and the people were giants and, 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 and we could never overthrow the, the promised land. 
And therefore, we'll never, what God is telling us is basically, go commit suicide. That's basically what God is saying. But Caleb rises up and he says, no, no, the land is exceedingly good, verse 7. And if it pleases God to be with us, he will bring us into the land and he will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Not only, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. See the faith of Caleb here? They will be our prey. Why are you afraid of these enemies? They're nothing. If God is for us, they're, they're going to be our prey. We're going to track them down like predators and take out our enemies. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Watch this, verse 10. But all the congregation... You want to talk about rare faith? All the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And this is where God tells Moses, Lord, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out. <laughs> but you see how rare the example here is of both Caleb and Joshua. And I think the lesson for us to learn is that there's anything we can take away is of the perilous effects of apostasy. We learn also something of the threat of apostasy in being called to spiritual watchfulness, not to be spiritually sleepy or spiritually naive, but to be watchful. And as we think about the root of apostasy, we're confronted with the potential evil that resides in all of our hearts and the calling not to be idle, but to grow in grace for you cannot wither if you grow. You cannot wither if you grow. If you grow, you will be like the blessed man of Psalm 1, always yielding fruit in due season. Also, the consequences of apostasy, to be cut off from the living God. This is why we can look to Caleb as a rare example of faith. And you know what made Caleb so rare? Is that he was, in a sense, a spiritual loner in his day. I sometimes look around at the evangelical world and I think, has everyone lost their mind? What is going on? Has everybody lost their mind? And that's not some snobbery assessment that we are better than. It just seems like everywhere you look today. Maybe it's because of all those emails Robert sends me on about media, news, evangelical news, but it is quite depressing. Not as depressing as this. You have not yet resisted sin under bloodshed, but Caleb did. Caleb was on the precipice of being stoned to death for wanting to be faithful, staunch, immovable, Follow the Lord. And you know what happens when things like Rick Warren, that whole thing, what happens there is that you begin to minimize doctrinal specificity. Don't get too specific about justification, imputation, propitiation. Don't get too specific about those types of things. Now, those, are, those are small issues. We agree on the really big stuff. You love Jesus, right? That's what he said. Mormons love Jesus. I had Muslims tell me all the time, I love Jesus far more than you do. Jehovah Witnesses say they love Jesus. Which Jesus? Oh no, that's getting too doctrinally specific. Well then, God's anathema be upon you. I have nothing else to say. It comes a point where we just have to, we just have to cut it off and say, if this is your position that we can't know truth, we cannot, we cannot delineate the doctrine of soteriology, we can no longer talk about propitiation, we can no longer talk about our differences and what makes us Protestant Reformed people and what makes you Roman Catholic, well then, I don't know, how do you talk to a person like that? That's a result of what happens here. They no longer listen to the Word of the Lord. And that is, that's the consequence. It means that mainstream opinion will be against you to stay faithful to the gospel. It means that you will not have the support, the support of the masses, of the popular people. 
It means that you will probably not get on television with that type of opinion. Finally, we end with looking at Joshua because that's what we're coming up on soon. Joshua means Yahweh saves. And we know that Joshua, as a type of Christ, brings his people to the promised land. As a matter of fact, it says that he caused them to inherit the land. Deuteronomy 1.38, Joshua caused them to inherit the land. But Jesus, our greater Joshua, will cause us to inherit the land if, if, to go back to Hebrews, we remain faithful. If, as Hebrews says over and over, several things. If we hold fast our confidence, if we hold fast our assurance, and if we hold fast to our confession. Those three things. If we hold fast to the end, then we will have rest from all of our enemies and we will have rest for our souls. If you see the goodness of the land, don't turn away from it. Amen? Father, Lord, one thing that the book of Hebrews and the example of the Old Testament shows us is that we can come to see marvelous things from your hand and turn away. And Lord, we confess that we, are, that we are too cavalier about that. We confess that we're not earnest enough and there is not enough fear in our heart and there is not enough trembling in our souls to know that like the nation of Israel, we can see all these great things from your hand. We can hear your promises. We can hear about heaven and the new Jerusalem, and Mount Zion, and we can talk about the heavenly city, and we can talk about being partakers of Christ, and we can see all of these glorious things. But if we do not take care that there be not in us an evil, unbelieving heart, we can forfeit all of it in one moment and be eternally undone. Father, have mercy, we cry out. Keep us in your mercy. Keep us in your grace. Lord, we are not strong enough. We are not kept by the power of our performance. And so, Lord, would you show us the power of your grace? Would you teach us the power of the cross, the power of the gospel? And help us to follow Jesus who went before us as our pioneer, who went through the heavens so we would follow him into the very throne room of God. Strengthen your people, I pray. Protect any of us here, Lord, from the wiles of the devil and the danger of apostasy. I pray this prayer over your people in Jesus' name. Amen.